0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure App podcast. Today, we are joined by Todd Olson, the founder and CEO of Pendo. I've been trying to get Todd on the show for quite a few months here, and I'm just so excited that he's here finally. So we'll be covering three main topics with Todd today. First, the evolution of product-led growth. Second, what are some of the common attributes of world-class product-led organizations? And third, the product metrics that matter heading into 2023. Todd, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast.
1: Great, thank you. It's great to be here, my journey to being here. I had the fortunate opportunity to start Pendo around nine years ago, and the impetus for Pendo was formed by my prior experience. So before this, I led a B2B SaaS team as a product leader, And I noticed challenges that were emerging in my job, challenges around how do we have good insights into how my users and customers were engaging in my software, which informed and answered questions like, hey, are the things we're building actually driving more engagement and are they leading to retention, right? So that was one challenge. Another challenge I started seeing was the way we enable and engage with customers need to evolve. You know, we we used to teach users, educate users, honestly, through physical media, through like books and manuals. And, you know, I used to have like a stack of manuals on my credenza and my cubes back when I started my career in tech. Now, software updates nearly every week. Couldn't keep a manual up to date even if you wanted to. Well, we don't have cubes and credenzas. Those are all gone, thankfully. And so the way we enable, the way we educate, the way we communicate with users just needs to evolve. It needs to be in a much more product-led way. It needs to be more contextual, like needs to leverage data. So I, I conceived of this platform that combines... Product analytics with the ability to communicate with users, all in the spirit of how do we drive a better experience for our end users? And you know, we started working a lot with SaaS companies and we still work with many, many SaaS companies. But I think the exciting thing for me is seeing this evolution in the market where, you know, and it, we've heard this term, every company is a software company or software is in the world. These are terms we all know. We hear these things, but like I live this and that is actually the thing that's most inspiring you know we, we now work with companies like lab and home depot and you know we have a company that that makes bubble wrap that uses pendo now so like like it doesn't really matter what industry you in everyone is thinking about ways to become more product-led
0: well you are the perfect person to talk about the evolution of product led because when you started 2013 there wasn't every expert in the world on LinkedIn pontificating about product-led growth, right? You you were product-led before it became an official category. So I'm going to start with a really easy question for you, Todd. What's the future of product-led growth? <laughs> okay, that's a big question. So let's really talk about first, how do you define product-led growth? How do you, Todd Olson, define it?
1: Well, actually, I'm going to step back for a second. and like So the product-led growth to me is a subset of this overall concept of being a product-led organization. And if I think about what it means to be a product-led organization, it's a company that puts the product at the center of the overall customer experience. And it's not like an afterthought. It's not like, oh, an additional thing. It is, it is the primary way that customers engage with the companies through the product. And so then let's take growth as a subset of that. So what does that mean for me with this respect to growth? Well, growth means that the primary vehicle for obtaining customers is through a product-led fashion, through primarily self-service. So you think about that means there's a product-led way to, to market to customers, and that's often through references, referrals, viral loops. Um, and, and we've all seen this. I mean, I think Zoom is a great example where, like, how did Zoom grow early days? You got invited to a Zoom call, and you're like, wow, that's a great experience. I also want to use Zoom. That is product-led growth right there, naturally. And then great companies, once they get this lead or this prospect that starts engaging with their platform, their platform is naturally good at finding ways to convert that to a paying customer and then renew and expand. That is product-led growth, and that is product-led growth in the context of what it means to be a product-led organization. I like it. So product-led
0: growth really is a go-to-market motion, and being a product-led organization is really – A business almost ethos or culture that you create. And you may not be a product led organization, but still have a PLG motion for certain products.
1: Yeah. And you actually may not be able to do product led growth, but be a product led organization. And I I think a good example is if you were selling to, for example, the government or a highly regulated industry, it's hard to do that without a human being involved. Like you just simply need humans to get involved in that. Now, once you have signed that customer, It is possible to eliminate humans from the overall customer experience. Like, how do you service those customers? How do you get feedback from those customers on what's going on? You can do that in a completely digital product-led way. You may be able to have to use humans in the early stage, in the actual customer acquisition phase. But then post-sale, it's very, very possible some of these organizations could onboard in a completely self-service way. So for example, if a new user uses your your application, what's that experience like? Does it require a human or can you do it without a human? The best companies think of ways to do this in a more efficient manner and in a more product-led manner because it's also a better experience for many users. Like the last thing you like, you get hired as a company, they sit you down and say, you got to use this software solution. Oh, by the way, you have to wait for a human to teach you how to use it. That doesn't feel like a great experience. Those are areas where I think Great companies think of ways that look at the constraints given to them within their market parameters and kind of figure out how to leverage the product as much as possible to deliver a better customer experience.
0: So that's a pretty hot take where you said we could actually eliminate human resources on the onboarding engagement and even ongoing growth of product utilization. But it's funny, I was talking to Nick Mehta and we were having this conversation before we started the podcast about the trend around digital-led customer success. And especially as we enter 23 and look at efficient, durable revenue growth, right? How do you eliminate or at least reduce the amount of human resources to onboard, engage, and increase product success, right?
1: I mean, 100%. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, digital-led, you could maybe argue is sort of a, a synonym almost for product-led, I think, in that in that exact example. So I'll use the term product-led customer success. And in my book, product-led organization, I actually refer to product-led success as, I think, the future of customer success. And I think it's a, this isn't a nice to have. This is a must-have. Like, there's no way you can efficiently scale a business where you rely on humans to onboard new users like i i don't think that's like a possibility in the long term so so yes we have to find ways to do things in a much more product led fashion the product itself. I mean, you know, I always ask myself: Is this a feature or is this a bug? And like, that's just one of my mantras I have in my back of my head. And like, requiring a human being to teach you how to use a product is a bug, not a feature. <laughs> so, like, if I think of it in that parlance, then in our job, many instances in product, is to fix bugs. So I like to fix that bug. Like that, that to me is broken. That's a bad experience. So.
0: Well, it's interesting. You can tell you've done this for nine years, but all those years of experience before that kind of led to where you are today. You wrote a book about product-led organization. You created a company that's all about product engagement, product utilization, analytics. You also recently launched a product-led certification course at Pendo because I've always thought who really needs to understand the real intricacies of being a product-led organization? Is it product managers? Is it the CEO? Is it the head of R&D? Is it the customer success? So tell me a little bit about the product-led certification course, and who's it targeted at, Todd?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, kudos to my team that put this together. So I think this product-led certification is like one of the, honestly, coolest things we've done in a long time. And we kind of looked at the book, and the, the book has been very, very popular. And we're trying to find ways to create probably a more condensed version of that. But then, of course, combining in more practical tips, uh, you know, obviously some level of test is required for certification. And um, to really teach people how to think, you talked about culture and ethos. This course is really focused on that. It is a more of a, it's intended to be an overview and has certain deep dive sections. But I think what you'll see is we'll leverage this as a follow-up deep dive in, I think, some of the, the more granular areas of what it means to be product-led. But I'd say the primary audience is certainly a person with a product management either background or desire. And we're, we're seeing folks in the product community talk a lot about this certification. But also, I'd say it's relevant for anyone in a leadership position that wants to learn more about how to take advantage of these techniques and i get ping on you know linkedin or other social media like nearly weekly on this course you know thanking us for doing it and talking about it and it's, it's from frankly it's all over the world we're seeing it in asia we're seeing you know not, not just a, a us-based thing or a north american thing um, but we're seeing a, like a large variety of roles levels Uh, Executives that have reached out and taken it. Look, it's a a three-hour course, so it does take a commitment, but it's manageable, and you can break it up across, you know, a few sessions. And um, yeah, it's actually quite cool.
0: So, geared towards somebody with a product management background, but not required to have a PM background. Correct. Well, that kind of begs the next question. For the last three to five years, there's been so much talk and energy around chief revenue officers, right? But now there's a new acronym, the CPO, the Chief Product Officer. So tell me a little bit about the evolution of that role. And what's the primary responsibility of a chief product officer in a product-led organization?
1: Yeah, look, I I mean, you want someone in in a product role who owns the strategic direction of the product and how to leverage the product to drive the business forward. And and I I think of a CPO and of... You know, responsible in many cases for the strategic factor of the business. You know, let's take software companies as an example. Software company, you know, I always say when we break it down into very simple terms, we build software and we sell software. That's what we do. Like, that's it. Um, That's what we do. Very simple business. And the CPO is responsible for connecting to the market and understanding, you know, how what we build best delivers on customer needs and outcomes. So, so I think like, that's ultimately what, what a CPO is all about, in my mind. And look, at, traditionally in the past, you'd see all of technology in the building roll up to a CTO, like individual maybe. But I personally think there's a lot of value in having this separation of roles and responsibilities. Because my, my CTO is very much focused on the how and very focused on what I call the illities scalability, security, extensibility, like all the illities, that quality, anything with ITY on the end of it, that or generally speaking, that—that that is what our CTOs are responsible for. And like, that's a full-time job. And in many cases, our CTO's responsibility is to say no, is to say we could do that. However, these are the risks. And so it's by its nature, a little more conservative of a role by design. Whereas my chief product officer I don't want that person to be conservative. I want the person to be incredibly aggressive. And I want the two of them to create a little bit of healthy tension. If you're talking to CROs and CMOs, chief marketing officers, it is well known. There's great companies have a healthy tension there. So I view that tension very similar to how I view the chief product officer CTO tension. And I think... Having a healthy tension where one's pushing and one's pushing back. Yes, they ultimately, you want a great relationship. um, You want a professional tension. I think that's how great companies are formed by having strong leadership that they can balance each other's strengths and drive the company forward.
0: What I took from what you just said about the healthy tension between the CTO and the chief product officer is that development, the actual engineering R&D resources in your model report to the CTO, not the CPO.
1: Yeah. Generally speaking, that's what we're seeing. And look, every company is different. And, and some of this admittedly does depend on the human beings you have. And there are some human beings that like have qualities of both. So like there, like all these things are imperfect sciences, org structure in particular. But but, like, generally speaking, I want a product-minded human, which is driving the strategic vector, which is pushing, which is trying to like advance in new markets, trying to make sure they have a strong relationship actually with our go-to market to be very external facing and the CTO, which is very much focused on like keeping this running like 99.999% of the time, make sure it's like super fast, make sure we're, we're thinking about like, you know, overall architecture going forward and leveraging the best technologies and, you know, managing technical, I I want, I want someone like hundred percent focused on, on that piece. And so it's like slightly different skills and strengths you know, I grew
0: up my first about eight years of my career I was at GE and we measured everything And our product managers, right? They own the revenue and profitability of their product line. So with the chief product officer, especially in a product led growth company, do they own new revenue,
1: retention and expansion revenue as some of their metrics for performance? So when we look at a, our product organization, and and we're a multi-product company now, so 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 that would mean our chief product officer has GMs, general managers of different product lines under her, and each one of them is thinking about revenue on their product lines and reporting on it and owning it and collaborating with the with the revenue teams to talk about what's maybe inhibiting revenue or what were opportunities for growth. So so yeah, they're very revenue-minded leaders. That's trying to connect what we're building and what technology can drive higher revenue for their specific product line. So yeah, 100% they are revenue minded. And then yes, within our chief product officer, we also have a head of growth and yeah, she owns a number and her team is, you know, basically waking up every day and trying to drive growth within our product lines.
0: Uh, Let me answer the, ask this, it's about product profitability. And it's really about cost of goods sold and that kind of gross profit. Does the head of product own that, or is that really the CTO's job to have an efficient operating and delivery environment to have the highest gross profit?
1: I mean, look at the end of the day, I, I think it's a little bit of joint ownership between the two. I would say in our organization, our, our chief product officer would be the one that would report out on it, but but working collaboratively with our CTO on uh, on the the headcount. But like, look, we, we do active exercises on. Looking at our entire R and D spend, looking at what product lines it's geared towards, looking at how that compares to the current revenue and then future revenue, because you have to have this balance between okay, yeah, I'm spending this and I'm deriving this much revenue, but a lot of R and D's investments are investments for growth for the future. So you're looking at okay, what's next year, two years out's forecasted revenue for this product line, or another way of thinking of it is what's the TAM, the total addressable market for this new thing we're building? Because that actually may be more important to spend money on than the current product, which is probably more of a cash cow. There, I'm trying to drive maybe more efficiencies because the product's already out there. It's already selling well. It's already differentiated. So so that's like the conversations we're actively having. Now, the, the reason the partnership with the CPO and CTO matters a lot because the CTO will know how hard or expensive it is to build or maintain certain product lines more than a cpo that those individuals will understand well yeah this is a kind of a complicated coding area i need these types of engineers that's just generally more expensive and this so that's where there is this connection but i usually have our, our cpo report out and kind of own this like strategic kind of allocation process
0: I love the fact that you said, it's not just about what my gross margin is today, but looking at one or two years. And I think Snowflake's a great example of that. If you looked at their financial reporting two years ago, they were like a 56 to 58% gross margin company. But what you've seen is as their revenue and number of customers and utilization has increased, their gross margin's going up, right? They were planning for the future. It's really an interesting thought process
1: yeah I mean honestly, we're actually a pretty similar company too. We're also an analytics company. we have a lot of data so so for many of us it's interesting, especially as maybe this is a little off tangent, but both in the days of cloud computing and obviously snowflake and pendo both cloud oriented companies in the early days, we directed our engineering spend or r and d spend towards building more features at the expense of focusing on improving our ghost margin it it was intentional intentional because in an enterprise companies typically speaking there's this race in the early markets to drive this critical mass of features to get this level of differentiation to make it very easy to acquire enterprise customers and once you get that level of feature set you can shift your focus towards okay now how do I focus on driving better gross margins other things and we as a business now like it's so a 9 year old so let's say 7 years old 7 years ago didn't think at all about gross margin but then maybe 3 years ago you know we started to say okay Each year, we need to make significant investments to start bringing this number up. And you can see the charts. I mean, like one of the more beautiful charts we have the company, right? You know, it's just like slow increase, gradual, like, because we're still getting great feature velocity. We're still building a lot of great things, but we are now carving out some of that engineering capacity to to focus on these margins because ultimately, you know, it's important for us as a future public company, et cetera. You know, I could talk to you
0: for hours. And one of the challenges of uh, today's podcast is we try to keep them short, right? So I'm going to ask you one more question before we go into metrics, because this is the metrics that major up podcast. But you've had a chance to see hundreds, if not thousands, of product-led organizations. And since our listening audience is primarily B2B SaaS and cloud leaders, I want to ask you, are there any common attributes that you've seen and product-led organizations. And let's try to keep this to technology product-led organizations. What are those common attributes?
1: Yeah, maybe this is just almost too much of a coincidence because we're talking about metrics that matter. But, but the reality is that the best product-led organizations are incredibly data-driven. Like okay. you actually can't be a product-leder if you're not. I think, I think that's like probably the number one. Number two, which is almost, you could argue like, corollary to it or, you know, maybe very, very closely related is is a very experiment driven organization. So like the reality is if you're you're going to try a lot of things. Some things are not going to work. Some things are. So having this culture of we are constantly experimenting and iterating and adjusting, like like our, our growth teams move incredibly fast and are running at any given time, you know, three or four experiments and reporting out regularly on how they're doing, you know, some work, we double down on them. Some don't, we scrap them. We move on to the next thing. You know, so I think That's the culture and ethos you need on those teams. Very, very fast, tight-knit team. You know, it's classic Amazon pizza team. So small group and constantly measuring data, analyzing and experimenting. That, that to me is critical to, to be a world-class product-led company.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, if people don't know the Amazon pizza team, it's like, shouldn't have teams any bigger than you can feed with a single pizza, right?
1: Exactly. And that's, that's kind of how we think of our teams here is like they're just small, nimble, like fast moving teams.
0: Okay. Let's pivot over to metrics. So, as I was doing research for this conversation, of course, I had to read your ebook on the top 10 KPIs for product leaders, right? Yep. But here's going into 2023 with everything that's going on. If I said, Todd, what are the three? The top three metrics that as chief product officer really needs to really be paying attention as they're um, almost their North Star metrics. What are those three? Can I limit you to that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Sure. And, and first off, I mean, just, just distilling things down to three of anything is always hard because it does depend on the business. So I'm going to suggest three, but then I also will caveat as saying, look, there's a lot of great metrics. And yeah, we've got ebooks and other books that kind of help go into it. And I'll share kind of one of the things that we've been thinking about even internally. So it's the metrics that we like more recently. So this is kind of fresh. We've been spending a lot of time looking at second week retention within our products. Someone signs up for something. They start using it. What percentage of those users come back the second week? It's kind of a close metric to stickiness, which is looking at either weekly active use or daily active use, and those ratios. But this one is a very specific one, just looking at how do we get people back for that second week. They kind of obsessing over over that. So that's kind of the first one. You know, obviously, for a lot of PLG companies, they are very focused on conversion percentages throughout the funnel. So, I think you know, looking, like knowing and looking at your conversion funnel, that's a critical metric. So, like just simply very, very critical. So, that would be the second. The third one is, is a pendometric. So, as well, uh, which is our product engagement score, and I do like this metric, and we have a lot of companies using it, and. And no, it's broader than those other two. I give you. I started with two very specific metrics, and I give you a broader metric. And I think because the product engagement is a composite, it's comprised of three scores, which kind of elevate to a single one. And, and, and the first one is around like the broadness or breadth of feature adoption. And I think this is a very important thing. You don't want your users using a very thin slice of your product. It's very dangerous. You know, you're more susceptible to churn. Uh, in other areas. So I think this breadth or adoption metric is one. I think stickiness, which is similar to second week, but just generally speaking, how many people are coming back? You know, there's this ratio of weekly active use to monthly active use is a very interesting metric. And last is growth. I mean, you know, like, like, like so we're looking at a lot at quick ratio, which is a, basically it's a retention metric, but but how much is your product growing? So like that scores, and if I take that score and compare it over time or look across other products, it's actually pretty valuable to understand what's working and what's not.
0: Yes, I you, I'm so glad that you put product engagement score number three, because as I was doing my research, it's like, I've never ever seen companies using PES. And that doesn't mean there's not a lot of Pendo customers who are, you know, I see people talking about product qualified leads, product qualified accounts, kind of those go to market metrics, but I love the product engagement score. So I'd recommend everyone to go look at your 10 KPI ebook and learn more about that. But we're gonna have to end the conversation with the last metrics that I love, and that is company level metrics. Those metrics that you as the CEO are looking at to kind of give insights to your board of directors and investors, how the company's performing year over year, quarter over quarter. So are those two or three go-to kind of financial metrics that you really kind of live by, Tom?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. So look, I'll, I'll give you an updated view today as well, because like the world's different. Like the economy is very different today than it was even say a year ago. So 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 today, one of the metrics that and this is we've shifted some of reporting on is is the focus on ARR per employee, which is efficiency metric. And look at the past. Revenue growth has been like the primary driver of our business, and the primary focal area. But now this AR per employee is, a you know, it's a way to proxy for efficiency. So I think that's a really interesting metric that um, we have been managing our business to now for the last two quarters. And we now feel very comfortable with where we've headed there. So I think we may move on to another metric. But that's, that's like our, you know, kind of our North Star metric today. The second metric, which I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people, but it's one I like just I love is a uh, net dollar retention or you know NRR or NDR, or whatever people like to use. But it's basically what what's the growth from your install base? Um, I think that's an incredibly important metric. I spend a lot of time thinking about ways in which we can drive net dollar retention. I mean, there's two aspects of it. There's gross, which is of course a, a piece of it, but I, I love a net dollar one. It's such an important metric. Look, if I had to pick a third metric, it probably would be growth, just because I think growth is the over barometer for software companies. So I I I think doing a podcast and not saying that growth is important, like it probably would be a, like a terrible mistake.
0: Yeah. As, a, as a CEO, I totally understand that. But I talk to a lot of investors and they're talking about balanced growth. And they're really talking about the reemergence of the rule of 40 as such a critical metric because it looks at growth and kind of the EBITDA or free cash flow. Do you even look at the rule of 40, Todd? Is that no, something?
1: I, I, I do. I do do it. Yeah, I could have said Rule of Forty for, for my third metric. That's a fair one. So yes, I think Rule of Forty is very important. And yes, but one hundred percent, we are looking at it. So and I and I said that AR per employee has been our north star metric for this year. I would not be surprised if we pick Rule of Forty next year as our north star metric. So like I, it is that important to us. But not all Rule Forties are equal. I, I recently saw a slide like recently, as in like earlier this week, came from one of the bankers. I don't recall which bank. But it was a regression analysis, like looking at a rule of 40, but different breakdowns. So like, you know, is it 0% growth and 40% free cash flow or 10%, you know, like 20% growth. So like kind of looking you know, all the way up to like 60% growth and still burning. And you can see here that like there is an optimal combo. And the optimal combo that I saw was kind of a 40%, 0%. So this like 40% growth and like Sears, it seemed to be the optimal like breakdown of rule 40. So I think that's kind of in the back of my mind quite a bit. And it was interesting. The analysis actually showed diminishing returns. I'm saying returns in like an increase in multiple. The ultimate measure here is how much you're valued. So like the, the revenue mold, when you've got higher, 50%, 60%, It seems like it could be diminishing returns. So,
0: we've been running some R squared analysis on this very thing, and we're finding anywhere from 30% growth and above to in 10% kind of free cash flow margins down to 40% growth and 0% free cash flow margins is the sweet spot. And by the way, if you get to 50 and 60% growth, but have a minus 10 to 20% free cash flow margin, your enterprise value to next 12 month revenue multiples are about 2 to 2.3x less. So yeah. you're exactly so, right. I'm glad you shared that. But I hate it, but we've got to wrap up today's episode. Todd, I'd love to have you back on someday, but I want to give the listening audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better personally through three quick questions. Yep. Is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow today?
1: You know, I, I um saw him speak recently and I, I just love the company. So I'm gonna go with uh, George Kurtz from CrowdStrike. Killer company, like net dollar machine, you know, for attention. I mean just he's awesome so like I'm, I'm gonna go with george kurtz so uh, okay
0: crowdstrike what a great company. great company second of all speaking of great companies is there a tool not your own because everybody who has product analytics needs pendo but that every SaaS company should use is there a tool it's like man you just got to use this
1: yeah look i feel like i'm cheating here so like i like the only thing uh, that i think about this is i mean I think Salesforce is a hard thing not to use the SaaS company and like so many solutions integrate into it. Like it's not just the Salesforce, but everything integrates into it. So maybe it's a boring example, maybe not the sexiest one that I could possibly give, but like it's an honest answer.
0: <laughs> I think it has become the digital hub, especially for all your go-to-market functions and their API and partner ecosystem. It's hard to rip Salesforce out because you've got 22 different apps that are feeding it, right?
1: Exactly. exactly
0: okay and the last question you know there's a lot of early career people who are following the podcast they want to be the next great b2b SaaS founder so todd if you were talking to someone who just graduated maybe in their first one or two years in a b2b SaaS company what advice do you give them to become the next great founder someday
1: well look um i i think maybe the best advice and, and look I don't want to offend some young person out there and say, like, because you know, there's two two paths. One, just go start something because you're going to learn a lot by starting something. And if you start something just right out of college, like go solve a pain that's a really hard pain that you've lived. But I do want to give another piece of advice that isn't said enough. Like, go work for a great company. Go work for a great SaaS company and see how it's done. That's actually one of the best ways you can learn how to start a company is just go work in a great place. Go work in a place with great leadership, Great company, great culture. You will learn so much in such a short period of time. Like, like, it's like dog years here. Like, you're just here for four years. It'll feel like a 10 year career. So go work at a great place. Come work at a Pendo or, 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 or lots of companies, like maybe not lots, but like there are other companies like Pendo's out there. Go work for a great company. Go see how it's done. You'll learn a lot and that'll set you up for whatever you want to do next.
0: And I think it's great advice, Todd. Plus, you're going to meet some mentors and coaches who are going to help. Shepherd you through your career. So, Todd, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics of Major Up Podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. This is a great, great conversation. And to our, our listening audience, right, if you're enjoying the guests we have, like Todd Olson, the founder and CEO of Pendo, and the content that we're discussing, it would mean the world to us. Go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Go ahead and give us that five-star rating. It allows more listeners to be introduced to Metrics Measure Up and provide us a review and recommendation how we can make the content even better. Todd, thanks again. And to our listening audience, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.